Hello and welcome to the Monarchy and Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. All right, guys, on this week's episode, I'm really, really pumped up to sit down and chat with one of the original guys in tactical strength conditioning, Coach John Hoffman. John is one of the leading experts in the field of firefighter health and wellness and currently serves as the Director of Tactical Strength Conditioning and Speciality for Southern California University's health systems. Prior to going to SCU, Coach Hoffman spent 10 years as a strength conditioning coach for the Sacramento Fire Department, where he oversaw the wellness center, coordinated the department's medical and fitness assessments, developed recruit fitness training, pre-employment and medical fitness evaluations, and assisted with the department's 20 certified peer fitness trainers. In addition, Coach Hoffman was the 2018 recipient of the National Strength Conditioning Association's TSAC Practitioner of the Year Award. This award is given to a TSAC educator and practitioner who has made noteworthy contribution to the teaching and practical application in the field of tactical strength conditioning. In this episode, John talks about how his career started working with firefighters, some of the biggest challenges he's faced in the early part of his career, how his program and his own philosophy changed over the 10 years he worked with Sacramento Fire Department, and his new role working with Southern California University. Afternoon, John, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, John, how are you? I'm very good, buddy. I'm very good. How's life in SoCal? <laughs> Sunny day today, so I can't complain. Nice, mate. Nice. Honestly, it's, uh, I would love to be there right now compared to being here in Scotland in the negatives as we are right now. <laughs> yeah, it is lucky. I am actually lucky. Look, John, I know um, like you've got a long history in tactical side of things. Like from the last few years, I've been researching into it that like everything I looked up on firefighter, you know, wellness and pr- preparation, your name always crops up. And I was just like, right, I'd really want to get John on and chat to him. Um, for anyone who hasn't come across you, John, you know, can you just give us a bit of an overview of, you know, your career, where you started out, mate, and where you ended up? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, so I'm um, originally from New Jersey. I moved to California in 03. I was training for, uh, in the sport of sprint kayaking uh, for the 04 Olympics. Um, I came upon, uh, during that time, I was actually studying for my master's degree in kinesiology. Uh, they all said, you know, hey, one day you're gonna have to grow up. And my intentions of working with athletes like everybody else, that was the goal. Uh, but I happened to come across a job posting uh, for a fitness coordinator for a fire department. And I remember thinking to myself, that's a very interesting job. And let me see if I can apply, you know? And at that time, I think it was like 800 people applied or something. And I, I was one of the finalists and I still remember it. They gave us a questionnaire of computer literacy and I did, they told us to build a training program and everybody was typing away and I just did a graph and I was done in like 10 seconds. And I said, well, either I did really well or I screwed this up. Well, it appears to be that I was the only person who actually made a training program with grass. Mm-hmm. Because during the interview, they said, could you explain this? And I said, that's a training program. I'm like, I don't need words, I need pictures. And I, lo and behold, I ended up getting the position um, and, and really had no idea what I was walking into. Um, and it was a big learning curve, actually. It was a huge learning curve. You know, I had that idea of, hey, they're tactical athletes and we're going to train them hard and, you know, high intensity power training. And uh, yeah, that didn't really work out in my favor, really. Um, you know, because you got to realize that they didn't trust me. They didn't respect me. They didn't know me. And within this, this industry, this tactical industry, having their trust and respect is everything. So it was something that I actually had to do and take a step back and reevaluate my approach and my style and my philosophy. Uh, and I, I attribute a lot of that to the firefighters. 
um, you know, they were patient with me. <laughs> they were tough on me. I'll give it to them. They, they were tough, tough love. But I think uh, it really helped mold me to who I am today. And I, I got to thank them for that. Obviously, sprint kayaking is a tough sport as well. Just go back to that briefly. What well, what go into sprint kayak, John? Is it like something very popular over in New Jersey, New York, or is it very niche? <laughs> nah, nobody does it. <laughs> uh, I was watching uh, the 96 Olympics, I believe. Um, sitting there with my teammates, I played college football, and I said, oh, it would be, be, how cool would it be to go to the Olympics? And I remember somebody saying, yeah, you're not that good. And I woke up pissed off <laughs> the next day. I, I actually thought to myself, wow, I think I'm better than I am, and you guys think I'm not. Okay, we have a, I, I'm really, I guess, I got to take self-reflection. And I, I actually said, I'm, I'm going to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And they said, what sport? And I said, I have no idea. And my dad was from Croatia and he did kayaking there as a young man. And I said, Oh, I'm going to do kayaking, not knowing it's actually the second hardest sport in the Olympics. <laughs> and uh, it was a learning curve and it was um, more of a vision quest, if you want to say, yeah. and it took me all over the world. And yeah, it was a, it was a, I did it for about 10 years. I lived in Australia. I made the U S team. I competed in two Olympic trials. Unfortunately I didn't make it, but I mean, I was pretty happy with how far I went for someone who actually never did a sport in his mid twenties, <laughs> starting <laughs> off in my mother's pool. <laughs> and I mean, what was it like making that transition? So you were saying you played college football. What were you? Were you uh, offense, defense guy? What linebacker. Linebacker. Okay. So yeah. Punching holes in people, non defenses. Yep. That's what I like. Yep. So, and it's the opposite sport of kayaking in the sense that you want little legs in kayaking. And I had these massive legs and, it was like, wow, I picked the wrong sport. In fact, when I lived at the Olympic Training Center, the bobsled coach used to always go, you sure you don't want to do bobsledding? You, you, you know you're perfect for it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to kayak. I'm going to kayak. <laughs> oh, brilliant, mate. Brilliant, dude. So obviously, you made the move out to California. You saying you applied, you got the interview, and got accepted onto the post at Sacramento. What was it like going from sport and model of being sprint kayaker, college football player, first day on the job, walking into that fire department? I always wanted to be a coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to watch the television show Coach. Yeah, I used to make little diagrams and play coach. Uh, it was something I always wanted to be. Um, and I think being an athlete helped me because now I had to change my role. I'm not the athlete anymore. I'm the coach. And, you know, being an athlete, you know what good coaches are. You know what bad coaches are. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've had them all. And I realized, all right, now it's my turn to be the coach. Step one. I have to get them to buy into me, right? No athlete, doesn't matter. Like, oh, those days I'm just do it because I told you don't work. And I had to start to understand how to get them to buy into me. And at that time, you know, if I told you to work out, you wouldn't listen to me anyway. So it was really spending a lot of time with them personally and asking questions and getting involved and doing the drills and and getting really integrated into what they do, right? I had no I really understanding, you know? And I always find it comical that when people are like, oh, I train firefighters. And I'm like, no, you work them out. And I think that's wonderful. But I'm their coach, that's different. I'm their teacher, I'm their educator, I'm their confidant. They come to me with issues that most therapists may not even hear sometimes, mm-hmm. right? These strong individuals. And I think that's because over the years, you cultivate the relationship, you develop this uh, rapport with them. You also give them the idea that they can trust you, right? And, and that's really important. They can always turn to you for help. And that's really what the role is. 
looking at then, you know, you're saying very much the, the coach's role, um, touching on the, the human side of it and building those relationships, not just the, the physical side of working guys out as well. How would you say your philosophy has changed then from, you know, when you started out being that athlete, that athlete and, you know, that coach coming in to the coach you are now? Uh, that's a great one. Uh, actually, I was like, you know, tough guy mentality, right? Like, oh, you got to do this. You got you to work hard. We're going to do like high intensity power training. And I was so like wrong. In fact, mm -hmm. I think now I'm more caring, compassionate. You know, my, my wife kind of laughs. It's like, you know, they're your children. You hug them. And I'm like, well, somebody needs to because nobody calls 911 on a good day, right? Yeah. So I, I'm not this hard, firm person. I'm more like, I guess, like a, a, a strict dad. <laughs> but um, my job, and, I, and it's very, a lot of people need to understand it's, it's a balance. There's a fine line there. You know, you could easily get sucked up into the world of, you know, hanging out with them and being their buddies, which is fine. But that, for me, I'm a pretty emotional person. I think that would skew my vision of actually what I need to do to accomplish to help them, right? Mm -hmm. Can't get too deep in the, into the darkness. Um, and I think over the years, I think I've learned to kind of work on my emotional intelligence and be able to be a little more softer with it, you know, and let them feel that it's okay to, you know, come forward when needing help versus like, oh, just suck it up, kid, you know? They're broken a lot of times, and and pain is pain doesn't leave the body. You know, I remember those sayings like, "Oh, pain's leaving the body." You know, this is I'm like, no, pain sucks. Like, yeah. pain is debilitating. Discomfort's different, and I think that would kind of sum up how I evolved over the years. Because when you start to see how much pain they deal with, and the issues, and how they hide it, and how great they're hiding it, but yet they still go to work, they still love their job, but they may be broken emotionally, whatever you know, you start to realize your job is to remove that pain element somehow. You got to be a little softer. Yeah, that's interesting to hear, John, because I know like chatting to a few other coaches in my own perspective as well, like, you know, starting out early on as a coach, it's very much the physical side of things. Like, right, this is how we're going to develop you in that. And then as you mature and grow, you then tend to dive more into that, you know, emotional intelligence side, the psychology side as well. Like, I look back on my career and I laugh during my undergraduate years, I always remember sitting in a psychology lecture and they were talking about uh, motivation for athletes. And I was just sitting there thinking like, this is crap. Why do you need motivation for athletes? These guys are always going to be pumped up to train. Not understanding you know, the reality are these people are human beings. There's going to be days where you're like, now this sucks. I don't want to do this and stuff. You know, and that's true. I, I still remember, uh, you know, my, my coach on the kayaking team, you know, Paul Podgorski had like three gold medals. And I remember saying to him, Hey coach, where's my Rocky speech? You know, like pump me up like football. And he big Polish guys, like, I don't know who Rocky is like, whatever. And he actually looked me straight in the eye dead serious and says, John, if you want to be an Olympic athlete, you got to come to the every day wanting to be the best. There's no words for me to tell you, but rather my job is to control you. Mm -hmm. And that was an epiphany to me. Like what? He's like, no, no, I control you. And I think I used that throughout my coaching with the firefighters and the cops. My job is just to control them, right? Give them what they need, not what they want. You know, maybe we'll have a trade-off. But really, at the end of the day, these individuals do want to get better. They do want to go to work. They are motivated. They just maybe are broken or hurt or something. So I think the people who get all rah, rah, rah up, I'm like, they don't need that. Trust me. They, they actually just, they need to be focused and, and, and give them a plan to get them to, to, to help. Cool. Now on that, John, like obviously I really want to dive into 
your career that you had at Sacramento and you know how mm-hmm. that program built up. But before we get into that, um, obviously you've been in this field for such a long time, you know, and you've really helped develop it. What do you say the biggest physical needs are for firefighters, you know, just in general terms? Because obviously the guys have got quite a mixed bag going from being at station, you know, quite low level and then very much high level on a call. I think the most important value, and it's underestimated, hopefully it'll come back, is the, the, the importance of strength. Mm-hmm. You know, when we hear strength, we think size. And I don't think that's, you know, necessarily true. I need you to be strong enough to be imperfect, right? Nobody can move with the jacket on or PPE on or the duty belt with a bulletproof vest on perfectly. It's impossible. I don't care who you are. Nobody's going to move perfectly. You're under load. So I need to make sure that you are strong enough from different vector angles, one leg, one arm, uneven loads, to resist any type of injury that could occur. I need you strong enough to be able to handle imperfected movements. And I think most people focus on heart disease and fitness. And and I'm like, fitness is the easiest. Do something that has work related. Go work a farm. You'll get in shape, right? Like, Mm Heart disease is going to be addressed through nutrition and blood work. Musculoskeletal injuries is going to be addressed by being strong. And I'm talking, you know, not functional strong. I need you strong at different angles. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize. You know, they always, I love barbell deadlifts and stuff, but what about our single arm rack squat, you know, so you can avoid rotation and stuff like this and these different movement patterns. And, I, and, and it usually gets neglected because we always go back to, oh, I'm breathing hard. That was so hard, right? You're like, most firefighters do not spend time fighting fire. They actually are running EMS calls most, for mm-hmm. the most part. So we need to make sure that they're strong because the physical pain that takes a toll on their body, it impacts everything about them. Not only that, we also get a good residual effect of you know, testosterone production and hormonal production when we lift heavy weight. We also can bring down cortisol with resistance training, right? And all of these things are going to benefit them. You know, but everybody wants to make everything high intensity. And I'm like, all you're doing is spiking them more. You know? you're, you're messing them up more. They're already amped up. Now they're wired and tired. We need to kind of bring them down. So with that then, with the strength side, and you know, 100% agree with you as well, do you have like a set testing battery or do you make it quite unique to the individual? So, you know, obviously being a college football player, the standards ones, you know, clean bench squat sort of thing, you know, that heavy bilateral one, or do you just have it as like, right, I just want you to have a heavy squat, whatever that squat looks like for you. That's what we'll See, work off. It's here's the thing that I had to learn. Like I love back squats. I love squatting and deadlifting myself, but their bodies will actually change in terms of posture, right? A lot mm-hmm. of them end up in a rolled position and they, and they lose the control of their pelvis. Remember, we're not dealing with 20-year-olds. We're dealing with 40-year-olds. When we look at a, a recruit, you can do whatever you want with a recruit. They're usually in 20 years old and you can you know, break it off them, right? And they'll repair yeah. the next day. A 40-year-old, <laughs> not so much because I'm 45. <laughs> and so I'm looking at them going, all right, we're not going to squat you anymore because you can't control your pelvis. Okay, but we'll teach you the kettlebell swing. And I, and I like to introduce new things to them. Mm-hmm. One, it's because they get excited. Wow, that, that was great. Like, I never knew that. So now you have that motivation factor of enjoyment, right? And I am a firm believer that it should be fun, right? 
The other one is like, you know, introducing single arm kettlebell squats or, you know, you know, learning how to do lunges again because they spend more time on one foot than they do two. So I'm not worried about the maximal load that they can squat and deadlift, but rather how, do they, how are they moving with, you know, single arm rack squat lunge, you know, and all these odd movement patterns. And I'm still going to get the same training stimulus within the glutes and, and the legs and the core. I don't need a lot of heavy load doing it because mm -hmm. the movement pattern makes it hard, but it's just enough challenging to, you know, have that carrot dangling in front of them. So I don't have a sets in stone thing, but rather it's kind of a, let me, let me see how you do with this exercise, you know? And then, ah, all right, I see what I see, right? And what I've actually noticed over the years is, especially for tactical and probably most people, you know, their right hip is always weak, their left QL is always strong, because they do too much barbell work. You know, they don't do uneven loads, so they have a discrepancy of right side to left side strength, you know, and they can't do side planks. And, like, that's the one thing that I noticed right away. Give them a side plank with a hip flexion. Like, they'll fall over. <laughs> Every single one of them, you know. Everybody does planks, planks till you're blue in the face, and they all do great. Give them a side plank, and they fall over. And now we know we have a problem. That's, that's interesting to hear there, John, as well. And it's something I'd like to delve into a little bit in the, you know, as we go through this, but like, obviously we ch chat a little bit there about the general markup for firefighters and what they're needing, but let's just dive in a little bit to, you know, your time at Sacramento. So mm -hmm. obviously you start out there, um, you know, what was it like, you know, um, that, that first day and, you know, what were those early barriers, you know, and what was it like setting up that program day one? Uh, well, I was actually quite lucky in the sense that there was a former coach who was a track and field Hall of Fame coach uh, working there part time. Uh, he already, I guess, he laid the foundation of exercise and mm -hmm. he had all the, he had every station outfitted with racks and dumbbells and, and Coach Beta is a legend and he's, he's a godsend. Um, but he also said that, you know, if you want to do this right, you have to make this a full time position because he also worked as a coach for the community college and so on. So when I came on board, he actually laid that groundwork. The first day I was like, okay, so what am I supposed to do? And no one really had an idea. Uh, I remember my deputy, uh, my, um, my battalion chief, my boss at that time, uh, he was like, well, we would love to get a medical screening program. All right. He goes, but don't talk about it. Why? He's like, well, <laughs> they don't like it. And what do you mean they don't like it? Well, you know, I said, well, why wouldn't they like it? Like, I don't understand that. And this is where I was naive. Like, I, I laugh now when I hear people say the same thing, you know, like, well, they're afraid they're going to lose their job. And I would say, well, that's stupid. But I was wrong to say that, you know, uh, I think, I think we need to accept their fears um, and, and make them a real thing, right? I, I'm not going to just keep going that stupid and think I'm going to win, right? I got to figure out how to overcome that fear. So I was being naive. So I was like, okay, so they don't want it. If I bring it up, they're going to get mad. And we have money. No, we have no money. Okay. Oh, yeah, you don't have a budget. Okay. So I got to be resourceful. Got it. Um, I remember walking into the drill staff's office at the academy and saying hello. And every, there was about 10 guys. They all turned and looked at me, and nobody really said anything. But, huh. And I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, a lot of cold shoulders in the beginning. And I, and I actually thank them for that. Uh, 
then again, I'm from New Jersey and old school. I like to earn my keep, you know, I earn, earn that respect. But I think people laugh and I'm like, rightfully so. I, did, I didn't earn their trust yet. They shouldn't open me, you know, with open arms. And I didn't take it personal. And that's the one thing I always tell the young ones, don't take it personal. You know, it's not an attack. You don't know their career. You don't know what they've been exposed to. You don't know what they've seen or, or what they've been through. And a lot of these guys have been through a lot of shit. So don't take it personal. It's not an attack on you unless you think you're butthead. Um, and then it just evolved. I kind of got lucky with a captain, a training captain who was very well respected in the department. He was now working in training. Um, he liked baseball. We would talk baseball. Uh, that was just kind of casual chit chat. And he was like, hey, this guy ain't so bad. And then we started, you know, one guy was like vouching for me, I guess. And then another guy was like, well, maybe he's not so bad. Then we had my first academy and they're watching, right? They want to see how you do. And they were doing a lot of, you know, CrossFit type workouts. And I brought it back to old school stuff. And, but I, I still wanted to embrace their traditions. I think that's important. I wanted their input. Uh, what did you guys think? What else do you do? How can I make it better? And that started to open up the doors and, you know, you know, guys would come over and go, Hey, that was pretty good. How you did that today. And so you're like, whew, thank God. You know, like, uh, there was a time I got pulled into HQ uh, about three months on the job and the chiefs were all sitting there. And I said, what I do now. <laughs> and they said, we're hearing rumors. You're running around yelling and screaming. And I was like, okay, fine. Uh, but I wasn't. And so that gave me the, it made me realize um, how powerful the rumor mill is. And so I, I thought to myself, okay, I got to use the rumor mill to my advantage, not, not against myself. So that's when I started to, you know, really say, if you ever need me, here's my phone, call at any time. My door is always open, but I wouldn't go out to the fire stations and hang out. Uh, if I did go by, if somebody requested me, I would always call fire station and say do you mind if i stop by captain i always showed respect to their home their rank i would never call somebody by their first name it was captain you know adams it was firefighter smith it was engineer joe you know and and you keep that respect there and i think that's very important it's easy to be like hey frankie how you doing today even if i'm to this day if i'm friends with them in front of their colleagues i will call them accordingly so the younger guys understand you know that that that's important to show that respect uh, there were days I used to sit at like you know a 7-eleven or a gas station with my call sheet and tell staff and uh captain can I come over no okay um, uh hey uh, do you mind like and I would be like doing nothing yeah. <laughs> uh there was a lot of times where but I was always planning ahead because I knew it was going to work I knew it I knew it I knew it I knew it because I have a saying in my office by Teddy Roosevelt, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. But I needed them to see how much I cared. Mm -hmm. And that was really important. I would do 24-hour shifts. Um, I would go on every call. Uh, they would be like, you know, you don't have to. And I would actually go, no, I want to know what it feels like to be physically exhausted. And, you know, and stuff like that. And, and really, that's... The first two, three years, it was really about that. And fun, the funniest part was during that Chiefs meeting, uh, you know, I was getting this, this, this. And I, I said, okay. And I remember the deputy chief goes, you look like you are frustrated. You want to say something? And I said, no, nah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'll just take my lumps and we'll just keep moving on. Okay. 
And they said, no, we would like you to speak your mind. And I said, you don't want that. And they said, no, please, John. And I said, you guys are fucking crazy. <laughs> Part of my French. And, uh, and I did, I cursed. And, and I was like, you guys hired the wrong guy. Like, I'm not a yes man. I said, you guys hired me to be the expert. Let me do my job. Let me take care of them. Well, the next day, I had a new chief, training chief, and that was supposed to be our introduction. <laughs> and she came in the back, God bless her. And I said, I apologize. I was unprofessional. I lost my temper. And she says, no, I see that you actually truly do care about the firefighters. And I'm going to give you a long leash. Just don't mess up. And from that day on, I had her support. And God bless Chief Iannucci. Um, and she let me run. She let me do what I needed to do. Um, it was weird hours. People don't realize, like, it wasn't 9 to 5. I mean, I was 5 a.m. to, like, 10 p.m. sometime. Like, it was crazy. It was everywhere. Like, and guys would call, hey, I just got back from a fire coach. My back went out. And I would go out to the fire station and see what I can do to help them. But that was the other thing. That drove me to be better, right? I didn't know a lot about low back injuries. Now I know a lot, right? But I would dive into it, you know? I would ask people, hey, could you teach me about this? Could you teach me about that? I would take classes from all spectrums. I had an open mind. I needed a giant toolbox. And that's what I started to realize. I got the Olympic lifting thing down. I got the kettlebell thing down. I need to know these other things. So I would just constantly read, research, ask. And that's why I'm so like, happy to help anybody else who asks for help because, hey, why not? That's my job. Awesome, Nathan. I mean, that's an incredible story. Like just showing like getting in from day one and like building that respect and getting that uh, slow process of people to buy into you and your vision of what you want to do with the guys as well. You mentioned another coach there briefly at the start. Was it just the two of you guys on staff or was it any other like staff members? You know, He retired. Yeah, he retired because it went to a full-time position. So it was just me, but he was there as a, as a guide. He was, he was a good sounding board because he had so much respect. Um, he was an older gentleman um, and he had so much respect and love by the members of the department. In fact, it was almost like following in John Wooden's footsteps in the mm -hmm. sense like, you know, I'm following in his shadow and everybody was comparing me to him. And that was a, that was a big obstacle, right? Like, okay, I got I to gotta fill in the great coach's shoes. This is going to be challenging. And guys would complain to me about him, to him. And he'd be like, John, I picked you. He was on my interview, actually. Um, the minute our interview was done, he was like, that's your guy. Don't worry about anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, and he's like, just, just do your thing, John. Don't worry. And I'm like, all right, coach, you got it. Like, thank you. Thank you for the vote of confidence. Because you do feel like you're on an island at first. You are by yourself. There is no staff. There's no nothing. It's you. And you're the only coach. And it is a very, very special place, but at the same time can be a very lonely place. Um, you got to learn how to, for the young ones out there who really want to do this job, I'm like, you really have to learn how to manage emotions, <laughs> even your own. Because the downside, I tell my wife all the time, like the hard part of the job isn't working people out and fixing them. It's actually keeping your own ego in check. Um, she kind of licks me because I don't talk about my job, but she'll make me laugh and she'll go, is it a bad day when someone tells me, thank you, you, didn't, you saved my life today? She's like, how often do you hear that? Mm -hmm. And I go, I don't know. I, I, I don't keep track. And she goes, well, is it a bad day when you don't? And I'm like, no, not really. And I actually told her, you have to keep, that's a very powerful statement. 
Thank you. You saved my life, coach. I owe you everything. From grown individuals who are saving other people's lives. It's a very powerful statement. It could easily let your ego get away from you, right? It could easily give you an inflated self-esteem of some type of God complex, right? And that easily could distract you from actually doing what you need to do. So I'm like, the challenge is balancing that. Like I always say, I don't celebrate the successes I'm supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. I don't celebrate things. Oh, you saved my life, coach. I don't celebrate that. I go, right. And I learned that from the firefighters. And in particularly, I was on a medic call with them one day. It was actually my very first call, um, a heart attack patient. And they said, do you know CPR? And I was like, uh, well, I got my card. <laughs> and I'm doing chest compressions as we're rolling down the highway and the medics are doing their job. Anyway, needless to say, the gentleman survived. And I was just like, oh my God. And we're on the back of the tailgate. They're doing the paperwork. And I am just like, wow, like we saved someone's life. And the one medic turned to me, John, and he said, who's your football team? And I was like, what? Who cares? We just saved the guy's life. And he goes, yeah, that's how it's supposed to go. And I just sat down and was like, I'm an ass. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I guess that's what you're supposed to do, right? He goes, yeah, we don't celebrate victories we're supposed to do. He goes, it's a bad day when we lose them. And I, that to me stuck with me. And I said, all right, I'm going to use that towards my philosophy and career, you know? And I think younger coaches, I see it happen a lot. They get caught up in that, that bravado of saving a life or helping somebody. And they get this chip on their shoulder and then they walk around with swag. And, and I'm like, at the end of the day, it's all about them guys. It ain't about you. And it really is. And I think the, to balance our egos as coaches is really a challenge because you could easily get sucked up into this, into this world, good and bad. And I'll give you an example. It wasn't uncommon to hear phone calls like, coach, could you get me out of the darkness? I mean, that's, you know, what do you say to that, right? Like, I, I remember I was in, coming back from the NSCA. I was in Colorado Springs and the phone rings and, hello? coach it's so-and-so and they break down and I need help and I just want to get out of this dark corner I'm living in it's da, 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 da. and so you go okay you know I'm gonna hang in there you, you do your best and we did help the individual and they're, they're great but I'm like you could our jobs as coaches is to help right we want to help whether it's make the other person better or whatever so you care a lot now you're in this organization where these individuals are like family members now, my firefighters are like family members. My officers are like family members. I knew everybody, their kids, their wives. The fire chief was like, you're the only one who knows everybody. And so you really want to help, but you could end up losing a piece of yourself, mm -hmm, right? Where's the line? And I've seen that. It happened to me. Like you neglect your own health, right? Uh, I didn't know how to handle certain situations, right? And it was very stressful upon me. It almost gave me a drinking problem, right? Oh. Just like everyone else. Oh, I'll just have a couple of drinks. And, but it just keeps going, right? These problems never stop. And it's like you just find yourself constantly chasing. It's almost like a drug, right? Because you want to keep helping to get the praise. But at the same time, you're sacrificing your own well-being. 
And I'm trying to tell the young guys, like, if you're really successful at this, like, you need to learn how to manage and control. Like, I don't drink anymore. Like, it's not, it's not conducive to my lifestyle at all. Uh, and you need to be able to, you know, manage those, those ups and downs because you're going to be exposed to a number of things that, you know, you may not be. And you don't have to save them, but maybe you have to point them in the right direction to get the help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I mean, that's... That's incredible to hear, John. I mean, thank you very much for sharing that as well. But um, yeah, just to be that invested in the guys. And like you say, you can get drawn in. And I've had it with athletes, but obviously, you know, you get invested in them as an individual and stuff, but maybe not as deep and dark as what these guys are facing in a lot of cases there as well, especially if it all falls on your shoulders at the end of the day. Because I was going to ask, you know, was it just you for the physical side, you know, other performance staff? Did you have any physical therapists or anyone, you know, around then? Or was it all very much just guys who outsource it? Me. <laughs> um, it, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was all me. I didn't have a nutritionist, no physical therapist. Um, you know, I have a network of professionals. I always, you know, you can't do it all yourself. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I did all the rehab, right? I did all that stuff. I did all the, you know, I, I rarely ever, what, what I am actually proud of is saying is that we took the guys who were broken, we fixed them, and then they ended up becoming a fitness group, right? Like everybody, everybody knew working out was good for you. That wasn't the problem. Everybody worked out. And I wasn't the one going, hey, you got to do this. I'm like, if you're doing something, great. I don't care. Like, you're working out, right? Like, yeah. it all works. <laughs> And that's where people are like, well, they need to be functionally. I'm like, I don't care if he likes to run, let him run. Like, he's doing something, right? He's making it a priority. What do we care what kind of workout it is? Well, it needs to be functionally. Dude, they're good at their job and they're working out. I'm happy. <laughs> like, people so get walked up in like the, the, the little, they want to like polish the chrome before they actually build the engine. You know, it's like, don't get caught up in that. Now, if you hurt, that's a different story, right? Now we have to get coaching and adjustments. But I was never critical of what they did. I always like, hey, man, good. Like, you made your own workouts up. I think that's awesome. Like, mm -hmm. you're taking ownership. And they used to be proud of that. Why would you not that? Um, Coach, I'm doing this guy's program. Put your ego aside and go, cool, let me look at it. Oh, you know what? You have a back issue. Don't do this. But the rest of it's fine, right? And that's where you had to learn to keep that ego in check. You know, you're, I'm um, encourage them. That's, that's what you're trying to do, <laughs> you know, but everybody wants to, they need to do this. They, no, they need to do something. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they don't need to do anything. Sometimes they just need to sleep. You know, I mean, that's what people are like, you know, get all wrapped up. The other thing that was very eye opening in the very beginning, we did fitness assessments and just old school military sit ups, push ups, run. Uh, run a mile and a half and the policy states that you had to show up but you didn't have to participate so the crews came out and i remember standing there and i watched and i went the only people that run are what runners i don't need to help them they already work out and that's why i kind of go to the people who have gyms and they go i train firefighters right you're training the guy who wants to work out. He's easy. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get this fat ass guy to do something. That's the challenge. And I think over time, I never berated. 
Uh, we changed up the assessments to be a, you know, a little less evasive. I wanted them to be fun. It wasn't a science project. It wasn't like a research lab. Just do, just pick five things and do them, guys, here, right? Like, let's get this ball rolling. Yeah. Eventually, everybody did them. Eventually, it became fun, right? Eventually, it gave me markers to see what was going on when I saw the injuries, right? When you have 800 guys do side planks, you, you'll see numbers. And so you start to go, okay, I can focus my education on this now, right? But people get worked up in this specific order. I'm like, dude, I had 25 guys for 90 minutes. You think I got to go, everybody's doing this now. I'm like, just go have fun. Yeah. Just do your thing, like push-ups, whatever. Here's, here's what they are, okay? And eventually guys would start going, how can we help? And it made me realize that one day, the first year we did them, like I was – everywhere running around trying to show them how to turn on the metronome and by the sixth year i remember a young guy he got a little cocky and uh the captain salty dog goes oh you don't want to do these huh he goes no what's this got to do with the job this is stupid and i just laughed and i said you don't have to that's fine i get it and the older guys used to stand off to the side and just watch and i'd always be like hi you don't want to do it that's fine I don't know if they were tired, bad shift. I'm not going to criticize them. If you want to, I'm here. That's what I tell them. Anytime you want, I'm here. No problem. Your back hurts. You don't want I get it. I wasn't going to criticize them. Eventually, the old timers do do it. And the old timers said to the young kid, all right, well, you don't want to do it, huh? He's like, no. He goes, well, let me tell you something, kid. Coaches are 911. When we hurt, we call him, just like the public calls us. And he always responds and he always helps. And we do all of this stuff that we're doing today out of respect to him. So if you get hurt, don't call coach. All right, I'll do it. <laughs> and I just sat there like, did that just happen? Like, did he? Holy, <laughs> this, is, this shit's working. <laughs> and that was like a very proud moment for me. And I was like, wow, I guess the message I was trying to portray happened right and that was the overall goal i'm your firefighter i'm here to help you guys that's it you know what does this got to do with the job nothing you know i i tell them it it's it's the only thing that's going to reverse what 30 years does to you mm -hmm. that's all you know i mean you've been putting out fires for hundreds of years you didn't need to be fit to do it but the job will break you it's just a matter of when right and when it does i'm here you know, and we just want to make sure we push that, that out as far as we can. I hope you don't break, but, you know, the odds are probably going to be pretty good. And that's really what we're doing. That's incredible, John. And it's, it's great to hear that as well, like just that, that process. And like you say there, the, the, the old timer turn around to the young one being like, listen, you know, we do this out of respect for John. He's our 911 guy. I think that's awesome to hear there as well. But obviously you talked a lot about, that culture you've built up and, you know, that, that buy-in you've gone from the guys in the trust. How did your program change over the, you know, the, I mean, how long were you at Sacramento for? 10 years. 10 years. So how did your program develop over that 10 year period, you know, from when you got started, you know, what did the, the changes look like, you know, how did they slowly get implemented and, you know, how did that build out? Well, that's a great one. Um, so the, we already had weight room and stuff like that. Uh, one of the things I did was take an inventory of what everybody had, right? So if you got to be resourceful, you started to learn what each station had. So if somebody wanted something else, you could switch and move things around, right? And that showed like you cared. 
I went around and fixed all the equipment personally. I, I even bought my own leather and foam and repolstered everything because I watched how they took care of their own equipment. And I thought, well, if I took care of this equipment, maybe they'll use it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I came to a meeting one time for risk management. They were talking about injuries and, you know, using all these great ideas of how to reduce injuries. And I remember thinking, well, first I was happy to get invited to a meeting, but now I hate them. Yeah. And so <laughs> I remember sitting there looking at the injuries and I'm like, what, why, what, what, what do you, what do you guys want to do? And the safety, Oh, we have to, these injuries. And I said, foam rollers. Like, well, what's that? And I was like, we'll just get a bunch of foam rollers and teach them how to loosen up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you know, give me 200 bucks. And it was huge. Like we held a drill for it and the guys loved it. The old timers loved it. Oh, we hey, just do this. If your back hurts and guys loved it, it was huge. In fact, this whole city ended up putting them in every department. And that's why I always go back to the statement I learned years ago. How do you get people to use more toothpaste? You make the hole bigger. It doesn't have to be complex. It sometimes all you need is a simple solution. And that's my philosophy. So we started to do focus more on the injury prevention side and really taking away some of their ticky tack aches and pains. Well, then they were like, well, what else you got? Right? Now you got their your ears. The firefighters like, hey, I love that shit, coach. What else you got? All right. Uh, <laughs> and I applied for a grant. And the fire chief says, you have my blessing. And nobody thought we'd get it. And I never wrote a grant in my life. But we won a million and a half dollars. <laughs> boy, oh boy, oh boy, was this a learning curve. I didn't know what procurement was. <laughs> I thought you were just going <laughs> to give me the money and I go buy the crap. <laughs> um, but this established our medical screening program. Mm -hmm. I also established a committee in the very beginning because I wanted to know everybody everything like workers comp so on my committee was workers comp safety ems we ha i wanted a firefighter who was who hated exercise who wanted to tell me fuck you all the time mm -hmm. because he's the guy who's going to give me all the answers right he's going to give me the obstacles uh we had a union rep and this was like my team and we'd discuss ideas and and then said well if we did that how was it impact workers comp how would this impact that and I started to learn the inner workings of this big, you know, cobweb. So when I got the grant, you know, it was like, whoa. And now we're going to establish a medical screening program. And it was voluntary. Mm -hmm. And that year's education, I, I created a heart disease thing. And I showed them, hey, this is how the job kills you. I can't change this. Here's what you can do to help yourself. And we based the blood work off of inflammatory markers not cholesterol. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, if you want, after the education, if you want to sign up, there's a piece of notepad, just put your name on it and I'll get you in there, right? I had to ensure that everything remained confidential. I had to work and trust my risk managers and workers comp that they would not receive any paperwork. Everything went directly to the firefighter. No call could ever be said that you're unfit for duty. In fact, the doctors I had to work with and say, look, all you can say is follow up with your own healthcare provider. I had to do all the scheduling, which was a nightmare because you have 800 firefighters and you could only get them in in the morning on shift, but in a fasted state. So you only had like two hour spots every day. Yeah. And so I was juggling 16 balls, but more importantly, I had to call each firefighter 
I personally called each one and said, would you like, even if they had their name on the list, would you like to do this? And there were a lot of times people would be like, coach, I trust you. Do I have your word? I won't lose my job. And I'd be like, yeah, yes, yes, you do. You know, a lot of times I had to put my neck on the line um, for the greater good. But I wasn't scared to do it because I knew it was the right thing to do. There were times where guys would be like, no, nah, coach, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to go to my own health care provider. Could you tell me what tests to get? And I, I was fine with that. I was absolutely fine with that. I had to streamline um, all the tests like hazmat, USAR, DMV, and now our own. I didn't want to send people over and over and over. Yeah. So we streamlined it into one time, one stop shop. You only go to the med center one time. Boom, you get all your checks done, right? And that was really huge in terms of scheduling and, and risk management. Love that. Um, and we had actually a 98% participation. Wow, okay, that's awesome. Um, there were times I actually had to walk them, <laughs> like, you know, hold their hands and walk them there. But it was for the betterment of, of for their own health. And it was so successful. I still remember the day the union rep called me and said, Coach, we have to have everybody do this. <laughs> Five years, six years ago, you guys would have killed me, right? And I said, why do you say that? And he goes, so we're now three years into this medical screening program. And he goes, I did your thing the first year, nothing. Second year, nothing. Third year, something. I'm ready to lawyer up and go fight. He goes, I just got back from workers' comp. They said, covered. No problem. You had nothing. You had nothing. You have something. It's presumptive. Done. He goes, we never look at it from a protective point of view. And I was like, I didn't either. <laughs> Wow. And so they wrote it into their MOU. And I was like, wow, okay, now we're really, I didn't have to fight mandatory. They wanted it. <laughs> and then risk management took it away from me so I could focus on other things now. And, I, and it's still, you know, I was proud to be able to say that we started that and it's still going and the fears were squashed. And a lot of guys, we caught a lot. We had one guy who had eight stints put in. Wow. Okay. Yeah. In his forties. Uh, I remember the one year we had an older firefighter in great physical shape. Um, we did a spirometry test that his VO two score was low. He came in and cursed me out. And I said, yeah, my numbers could be wrong. <laughs> I'm not the best. And his numbers were still low. And I said, well, maybe you got, should go to the doctor or something. Well, he did a spirometry test at the city fair and he didn't do well. And he, got pissed off again and he went to the doctor and he did have a lung disorder and he was able to fix it mm -hmm. and he came back and he apologized to me and he goes this shit works <laughs> <laughs> and I just said I'm glad you're doing good and again that's where I'm like you know it's just about them that's all that's cool that's cool to hear how that program's grown as well over the 10 years you were there John obviously you said with the medical screening and the blood work you know that went directly to the firefighters uh, completely confidential, you know, look mm -hmm. after them as well. In terms of like, you know, your fitness and wellness stuff, what, what things you typically track that, you know, is that confidential as well? The stuff you track from the fitness? And Everything stuff? I did was confidential. Okay. Nobody was allowed to have anything. If you were next to me and say, Hey, how'd Joe do on the push-ups?" I'd go ask Joe, like yeah. you can never give the perception that you are a part of this rumor mill that you're talking about anybody. And that's where it's very important to understand, like, what do I look at? 
I would look at the assessments, you know, at the end, you know, everybody would do them. And I would look at where I'm at for push-ups, pull ratios, where we at with the planks and this. And then I would look at workers' comp injuries and see where we're going. You know, like our injuries for low back used to average 40,000. They went down to 7,000 a claim, right? Like, so that was good. Um, I developed a rehab policy. That provided, because I was able to convince the staff now, the administration, like, you know, it's wasted resources to have a firefighter on the bench doing, you know, paperwork, you know, so give them 90 minutes with me and then, you know, we can put them back wherever faster and everybody signed off on it. So you always got 90 minutes a day to work out with me, all the injured, if you chose to, you know, and, um, and that was, that was great because we were able to, to switch a lot of lost days versus modified duty. So a lot of the severity of injuries were decreasing. Guys didn't need to take time off. They, they could be on modified time. So it was really starting to work on that end. I did have peer fitness trainers, but they were so overworked already. They were volunteers. I didn't want to crush them, but they were helpful. Guys would do like, you know, one guy was a bodybuilder and good with nutrition. Another guy was good at CrossFit. And I utilized, you know, hey, you want to learn a running program? Go to go so-and-so, you know, like. I would encourage them to seek out their other members. I think it's important. You know, we tend to want to do everything ourselves, but it's impossible. You just work yourself to death. <laughs> so I take it then from that standpoint, uh, the department, I'm guessing the county of that would just measure your program success stuff then just purely on like uh, workman comp injury sort of stuff. Then that's their data lines that they measure. Yeah. In fact, there was a point in time where we had uh, the housing market crisis in 08. And everything went to, you know, went to shit. And we had a hiring freeze. And we were browning out stations, actually, like three brownouts. So there was a lot of cutbacks across the city. And one of them was going to cut me back to part-time. Mm -hmm. And risk management was like, no, 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 no. This guy's just starting. Like, he's only been here a year and a half. And he's actually making an impact. And they said, well, how much so? And they started to look at the numbers. And they even saw, like, injuries were going down by like $629 a claim. And they were just looking at strains and sprains, nothing really big. And it was a savings of at least $60,000 alone. So with that, they were like, okay, we'll leave him. Like we won't touch his position. Um, and from there, as one of the fire chiefs said, it was a beacon of the department during dark periods. You know, it did give morale. It, it did make guys feel something prideful, you know, like other agencies started calling Detroit, San Francisco, and that, you know, everybody was proud that wear the t-shirt, the logo, this idea of fit for life, you know, like it really was something that they were very happy of and, and everyone liked just having the coach. So how did they market? Yeah, we looked at numbers and data. But I don't get wrapped up in that. I get wrapped up in the vibe, the feel of my team, right? Like, you know, you could have a losing record as a coach, but still be a great coach. Most coaches have losing records. Mm -hmm. I want to know what the feel of my team is, my department. You know, how, where do we need to go? What do you guys want? And I would do surveys. I'd give them, in, like, I'd let them give me input. You know, what do you guys want? And that was very important. People don't do that. I'm like, it's their program. It's not yours. Give them what they need and, you know, and, and, and build it. You know, what do you guys want to learn about? What did, what did you want? What did you want to see? My first year doing the survey, whoo, boy, uh, the answers were <laughs> unique. <laughs> uh, fuck you. <laughs> fire the coach. Uh, we should be hiring a firefighter, not another coach. Uh, I mean, there was some stuff that you just had to laugh it off, man. Some of it was just like, wow. 
Um, but then you did it a year or two, then you do it year three, and all of a sudden you see the answers change. Then it was a, another down period where someone said, well, why don't, one person I think out of the entire department hated me, but she had issues. And she even brought up in a meeting, get rid of coach. And like everybody in the room just turned to her and said, shut up. <laughs> like, you got issues. And they said, the sad part is he'll, he'll actually help you if you ever ask. And she was just like, I know. So we didn't really have, I guess, you know, we're not like the military. I don't roll like that with all this analytical data stuff. Is it working? Yeah. Guys look better. People are healthier. Injuries are down. We never had anybody broken recruits. Um, morale was up. So I guess it was working. That's a nice date. It's cool to hear that and just see like that process through. Um, obviously, you've, you've left Sacramento now and you're now at um, Southern California University. How did that come about? Was that something you applied for? Did you get headhunted into the role? <laughs> Luck again. I'm a lucky guy, I guess. I was teach I'm a post instructor uh, yeah. for the police officers for the state, and I helped develop the uh, PT instructor course here. It's a mandatory class, so those who are going to train the recruits don't crush them, right? And I was teaching in uh, Riverside, and the one of the lieutenants for LA County uh, I knew, Joe Dula. Uh, he's like, "Hey, I got I'm working on a project with this university." And the director there is going, do you mind if he comes to the class? And I said, yeah, sure, whatever. Because he's trying to learn about law enforcement more. And I said, all right, cool, tell him to come to the class. Yeah, it's five days. And I actually, we just started chatting and, and, and he's currently my boss now. And uh, Dr. Horgan, brilliant, wonderful man. And he, he, his resume is like just enormous, but he's so humble. And he was telling me one time he used to work with the LA Kings, the hockey team, and he was their strength coach. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. And the students, the cops are doing some drills. And I'm like, yeah, that's really cool. That's cool. And the first thing I said to him was, yeah, but they don't care. And he looked at me like, what? I go, yeah, that's great. They don't care. <laughs> he was like, I was just so put off that you said that. <laughs> and I just said, don't take it the wrong way, but they don't give a shit. They're cops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he, he laughed. And um, from that, we became kind of close. Uh, I went back to Sacramento and I said, anytime you need help, just let me know. Um, and then about two years later, he's like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this thing. And do you want to be a part of it? And I was at a crossroads. I think I was kind of bored, I guess, for lack of a better term. Like I really accomplished everything I wanted to do, you know, within the 10 years at Sacramento, I was kind of bored and stagnant. My wife even saw it. Like, I'm a builder, right? I'm not a manager. I like to create and, and develop and then hand it off. Um, okay. And I was like, yeah, that, yeah, that sounds cool. Like we can do what I do now, but on a much larger scale. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm ready for a change. Let's do it. And really that's how it came about. Um, he told us, he told the administration, this is the guy I need. And that's really kind of, it wasn't even really a job posting, I don't think. Um, in fact, I think I applied for a different human performance job or something. And they said, well, we're going to do this tactical thing. You want that? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what tactical thing? Um, and really, that's really what it's, that's how it started. I was very lucky for Dr. Horgan to come along and just give me this opportunity. That's cool. That's cool. And, and how's the, the job sit with you now, John? Is it like a lot? Is it like 50-50 between like practical delivery and academic, like, you know, in-class teaching or is it? Oh, I don't do much teaching at all, actually. Um, 
I would spend a lot of time actually, uh, I, I do all the rehab and the reconditioning of all the guys uh, that come through, all the sheriffs and stuff like that. I still teach for post. Um, I'm also, I guess, on the private side of things now, you know, more like I got to do sales in a sense, like mm-hmm. develop relationships with the other agencies. But I already have a lot of the relationships within the organizations down here from the years of working in the industry. So what we end up doing is basically, you know, hey, John's here. And so people choose to come here to get rehabbed. And, and then we have our students. And so it kind of works that way. I'm also a salesman, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> hey, man, coaching is sales, isn't it? At the end of the day. Yeah, it is, actually. I'm like, you, you got to convince your population somehow that, you know, they need help. And that's why I tell people being a personal trainer has its benefits. Like uh, I use some of the skill tactics from personal training in this job, right? Like you, you use a facet of everything. Military people are like, you got, you're the coach, you're the coach, you're the physical therapist, you're the therapist. I'm like, I got to wear like 16 hats. <laughs> like, it doesn't work like that in public safety, man. And I'm like, and you still have to develop the relationships. You have to meet with the command staff. You have to go out and, you know, really build work with workers comp and develop these relationships outside of the tactical community. Yes. Cause it's going to be the betterment of the good of the officer and firefighter, but you know, working with workers comp and risk managers and safety officers and administrators, like these are, this is, and sometimes they feel neglected. So you may have to help them too. Right. So at the end of the day, you're just helping a lot of people. <laughs> definitely. Man, definitely. Now, I mean, uh, John, you've been in the, this field for like a number of years, and you've put out a lot of great resources and information out to help you know other people help out their departments and their field as well. But I'm I'm keen to know you know what you go to for your own development as well. Like I always ask everyone who comes on the show what they engage in for their own CV. So on that, have you got a book, an app, or a website recommendation that you found useful for your own education or development? Wow. Um, well, one thing I often do now is I, I practice Stoic philosophy. Mm-hmm. So I read my daily stoic every day. It helps a lot, especially in today's chaotic world. But it helped me to balance. It helps me to balance my own emotions. I'm a very passionate, emotional guy itself. Uh Um, But it helps me to keep things into perspective. um, Reading, you know, writings, you know, of great leaders and such. So what I often do is read that. Um, I probably write that. I, I still am an athlete at heart. I still work out every morning, right? I take time for myself. I read that and I have my daily thought. Uh, I used to do a lot more. Um, I used to keep a journal, notebook, five, five binder, notebook. And I would list it joint by joint. So mm-hmm. I had two of them. And no matter what I read that day, I would log it in. If it was on the low back, I would write it in that chapter of low back where I saw it and what I learned. And now I have like novels like this. I could probably write a book of everything from behavioral to the heart disease, to low back pain, to different programming. It's amazing. Like how much you actually learn if you just learn one thing a day Yeah. and not just jot it in a journal, but I actually had it organized, you know, so I could just write on the cover. It said thoracic spine, cervical, you know, low back joint by joint approach. So whatever I read, I just go right to there. So when you had to make a presentation, I had all this information at my hands, right? Um, People try to do it all at once. I just spread it out over a a long time. I I try to actually use, stay off social media and stuff like that. I don't think it's acceptable. I don't think it's something that it's very good in the tactical setting. I don't post or do anything that may put my guys in harm's way. 
mm-hmm. and I'm not an I, my, or me guy. I don't sit there and go, hey, look at these guys I trained today. I may take pictures of something cool that we're doing, but I try to keep the privacy of their lives to them. Um, they're already put in harm's way. And a lot of people need to understand that it's very important. Like, you know, I get social media, but don't be the I, my, or me guy, you know, don't get caught up in that little rabbit hole. And so I try to actually just stay away from it. What I do read is other things. I think it's very important for us to develop other areas of our lives versus just training all the time. Yeah. I read success magazine. Um, I read other stuff arts entertainment and you'd be amazed where the creativity of ideas come from you know you could find something in a read something about a musician and go hey you know what i could actually use that same idea over here in training you know and it's pretty cool to see how there is a lot of interrelations in different industries yeah i think it's important just to you know have a broad spectrum of interests and research out i know myself this last probably year spent a lot more time on you know um just emotional intelligence sort of stuff like that as well and then also i think in this current climate financial intelligence as well is a big thing for everyone let's say see and i did that already i had an economics degree i have a series sevens license and a stockbroker so i kind of got bored i like to yeah i like to expand my horizons and i stay up to date on the training protocols but at the end of the day you know i like to read the old stuff yeah. Like what the the USSR or the former Soviet Union and those old training, because, man, it's just mind blowing how far advanced they were, you know, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden everybody thinks they created something new. And I'm like, no, they did it in like 1949, you know, <laughs> and so I, I love history, you know, and stuff like that. So I wish I could give you a specific thing, but I, I think at this point in my life, I kind of try to just go with it a little bit more instead of being so structured and just everything is training. Like if you were to see me at a conference, I could promise you I'm not talking about training. Yeah. <laughs> I'll talk to you about anything else, but I probably won't talk about because again, that balance, I don't want to um, get lost up in this world. And, you know, I get it when you train athletes, it's a lot of fun and it's, it's kind of that camaraderie. But at the end of the day, I used to go home with a very heavy heart. And, you know, you're surrounded by a lot of bad stuff and, you know, you got to really learn how to manage it. You know, I don't talk about my job really, unless it's funny. My wife understands that. Um, And you got to protect your loved ones from it, but it's not their responsibility. It's yours. And yeah, you do deal with death. You do deal with some, some serious issues and, and it, you know, if you are a good coach, you probably care. So you have to learn how to manage that. That's awesome. I mean, I appreciate you uh, being open and honest about that sort of stuff as well, John. It's great to hear me. Um, obviously, this has been incredible conversation with you, John. I've really enjoyed the chance to sit down and you know, chat away to you, but it's been something I've been looking forward to for a while. Uh, for anyone who's been listening to this, you know, who wants to reach out and connect with you or find out a bit more, what's the best ways they can do that, John? Uh, they can reach me at my uh, work email. It's John Hoffman. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-F-M-A-N. That's one F. At S-C-U-H-S dot E-D-U. Southern California University Health Systems dot E-D-U. Uh, that's usually the best way to get a hold of me. And I'm always happy to help anybody out. Actually, if anybody ever asks for help, I'm always happy to do it. You know, I did not get here alone. Uh, I did not get here by myself. Uh, Rob Orr, uh, Mick Sterling, uh, 
Rob Rogers, Tyler Christensen. I mean, these guys are just as, if not smarter than me. Uh, I just happened to be lucky at the right place at the right time in an industry that was just starting out, to be honest with you. I can't tell you how many of these guys, man, the, the list can go on. Joel Rather, uh, you know, uh, Nate Palin. There's so many great coaches in this industry. Um, Logie over at the 10th group, up that I think the older guys can learn from. Um, and that's important. So, yeah, if anybody ever needs help, you know, please feel free to ask. I'm not one to go around giving it, but if you ask, I'll definitely do it. No, oh, that's cool. Appreciate that, John. Thank you very much, mate. And once again, thanks for sitting down, John, me, bud. Yeah, my pleasure, John. Thank you for having me. No problem, John. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Hi, guys. Really hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Monarchy and Performance Podcast. I just wanted to say thank you for your continued support to the show. We're slowly growing each week and getting more and more downloads, which is truly incredible for such a niche-specific podcast. The continued support us can ask you to do me a simple favor. First of all, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using so you can receive each new episode as soon as it's released. Secondly, if you found something educational, if it made you see a different perspective, or if you took something away from this podcast that made you better, please leave us a review as it means a lot to me, and please share the show. This will help us to grow the show and really get this information out to a lot more people.